We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And I will be reading and preaching this morning on verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And I want to apologize in advance for a raspy voice today. I've been fighting a cold for the last 48 hours, and uh, my voice may wane and sound weak at times, but I'm praying that the Lord will sustain it. So thank you for your patience. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. Here the writer to the Hebrews states, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit that he would grant us understanding of this text this morning to the encouragement of our hearts and to the steadfast endurance of our faith. And we would ask now that you would control all that transpires in the service for your glory, that Jesus Christ might receive honor from us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as believers, we should not be ignorant of God's unchanging character. Rather, we should live with the full assurance that God is and will always be who he says that he is, and that God will most certainly do and most faithfully perform all that he says he will do. And of course, this assurance of God's unchanging character, or what we call God's immutability, should not only sustain us in the midst of our service, as we are certain that God, who is immutable, will not forget our present work and labor of love, but it should also sustain us in the way that you and I hold fast or hold steady for the future as well. For in looking forward to the future and setting our eyes upon the good things and the better things, that God has reserved for us. We are not to lose our confidence in God. We are not to waver in our commitment to God, 
by becoming spiritually sluggish or indifferent in any sense of the term. But we are to possess, along with our assurance of who God is and what he will do, a growing confidence in God, which is accompanied by a spirit of earnestness and the evidences of spiritual vitality. For when we are truly confident in God, fully assured that his character will not change and that he will do what he's committed himself to do, we will not be spiritually indifferent or inactive. We will not be spiritually lethargic or lazy, but rather we will be eager to live and to act on faith. We will possess a perseverance and a persistence about us that will not be easily shaken by adversity. For the writer of this epistle stated back in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12 that when we have confidence in God's character, when we believe that God is not one who is unjust and neglectful, you and I begin to live like those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In fact, no one will have to persuade us. No one will have to convince us that it's in our best interest to live in a faithful and patient way, but rather we will simply become imitators of those who have already been on this path before us, of those who have learned for themselves that God's character and God's promises to his people are absolutely certain. And that those who press on in faith and patience towards the promises of God cannot be, they will not be disappointed. And why can we be so certain of this? Well, I want us to notice in our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, that the writer of this epistle points us to two things, two things that assure us, two things that give us absolute certainty that God will keep his promises to us as his people. And the first thing that the writer points our attention to here in, in verses 13 through 18 in particular is that way that God dealt with Abraham that way that God dealt with Abraham. For if there was any man who through faith and patience inherited a promise, it was Abraham. And since we are described back in verse 12 as those who should be imitators of such men, it is wise for us this morning to consider Abraham's example. I think there's much good in considering Abraham this morning. Trust me, I hope you will consider him. Abraham was a man who was willing to leave his own country and venture out into a land that was not his own in obedience to God and in the hope that God would make him, as promised, a great nation and that God would send forth a promised seed that would bless all the families of the earth, according to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. And yet, what is most instructive, what is most edifying about the account of Abraham is not what Abraham 
did, although he walked and waited in faith and patience, but what is most instructive is what God did in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. For apart from the promise of God, apart from the sustaining grace of God, Abraham, as great as he seems to us today, would have failed to receive the promise. If it were dependent upon Abraham, it never would have transpired. In fact, if you study the life of Abraham, you see that he failed quite often. However, Abraham eventually became a father and he received the son that he so greatly desired because God had made Abraham a promise. And it, it was not an ordinary promise, nor was the language of this promise common or ordinary in any sense of those terms. But rather, it was a promise that God made upon the honor of his own name, upon the unchangeable nature of his own righteous and just character. It was a promise that God bound himself to by his own divine oath. In fact, the writer to the book of Hebrews, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, I should say, introduces this promise and its guarantees here in verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews chapter 6. Notice what he says here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And what was so significant about God's promise to Abraham was not just its gracious nature, not just its gracious nature, but its grand redemptive content, but also the way in which God, by appealing to his own just and righteous character, both legally and formally guaranteed its fulfillment. God legally and formally guaranteed by his own character the fulfillment of this promise. And of course, this is why God's dealings with Abraham are so significant here in this section of Hebrews. For in this section on why we should feel confident to press on, to follow after Jesus, who is in a redemptive sense the son who was promised to Abraham, we are reminded that God did not leave the fulfillment of his promise in the hands of Abraham. God did not depend upon Abraham and Abraham's faithfulness. Nor did God instruct Abraham to place his trust in some human authority to ensure the accomplishment of it. Rather, God assured Abraham by taking an oath to the truthfulness and the integrity of his own character that Abraham needed to look no further than the one who gave him the promise in the first place. For God was willing to hold himself legally and formally accountable. I want you to hear those words. God was willing to hold himself legally and formally accountable for fulfilling the promise. God was willing to guarantee his fulfillment upon the truth of who he is, upon the certainty of what he has promised to do. And of course, upon hearing these assurances through the oath that God himself took, Abraham was satisfied. That's 
the good thing that we see about Abraham by grace, he was satisfied with that. Abraham, as a man of faith, was not disappointed. Why? Because how could he be disappointed? With God himself taking upon himself that responsibility. And Abraham did receive the promise of God to him. In fact, the writer of Hebrews states here in verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Unquote. For if there's one thing that Abraham is to be commended for, one thing that sets him apart as a godly man to be imitated, it is the fact that Abraham was willing to take God at his word. Abraham was willing to be fully satisfied in the oath that God took for his own honor and for Abraham's good. And because Abraham was confident that the unchangeable nature of God's character and of God's promises for him would guarantee that God's oath would be fulfilled. Brethren, that's how you and I should be. We should be willing to take the promises of God and be fully and completely satisfied. No longer anxious, but satisfied with the unchangeable nature of God and his character. And of course, it is in reference to this oath and its particulars that the writer to the Hebrews turns next here in verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews chapter 6. For the writer wanted his readers and you and I to understand that the process of appealing to a higher authority and the use of oaths to guarantee a contract was not an unusual or an uncommon practice. In Old Testament times, whenever a binding agreement of any kind was being formalized, the leaders and the representatives of the parties involved would often make binding appeals to the highest authorities that they could to serve as witnesses to the transactions. And the oaths would be taken by each party involved in the agreement as a way of officially confirming that the agreement was now in place and that it was legally enforceable. What's really amazing is that Abraham doesn't have to take an oath. God does all the work himself. God is the one who takes the oath. In fact, the writer of this epistle is referring to this legal practice here in verse 16 when he writes, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes or in bringing an end to their disputes, an oath is for final confirmation. And of course, what is interesting about God's dealings with Abraham is that God acted in mercy to follow this practice and giving us the assurance of his intention to fulfill his own promises through Jesus Christ. For as the great lawgiver, as the absolute highest authority that there is, God was never under any obligation to swear to anyone or for anything. He was not required by nature of who he is 
to pledge himself or to give a legal oath as a way of confirming his own faithfulness to what he said that he would do. And yet, because of his great mercy, think about this, because of his great mercy, because of his desire that Abraham and all the heirs of the promise have full assurance that he would do exactly what he said he would do, God swore unto himself by an oath. God testified and witnessed before himself. This is a strange thing, and yet a remarkable, amazing thing. He testified and witnessed before himself in a binding and legal sense, his own promise or his own guarantee to fulfill everything that he had pledged through Christ to do. In fact, this is what the writer to this epistle is saying here in verse 17 when he writes, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. For while God did not need to make an oath, he did not need to do anything to ensure his commitment to us nor did he need to make an oath to guarantee his own integrity or his ability to fulfill his promises. Nevertheless, God chose to do so. He chose to do so. Why did he do so? For our sake. For our sake. Because God knew that Abraham and the heirs of the promise would need something firm upon which to establish their faith. And therefore, God desired, according to verse 17 here, to show more convincingly, amazing statement. To show more convincingly, to provide us with even more to convince us of his own willingness to display his own unchangeable character. So here we have proof that God willingly provided, as it were, the evidence that was needed to bring Abraham and all his people to a full and complete assurance of his faithfulness on their behalf. For if we have any faith in God's ability to fulfill this promise, it is now grounded in what God has graciously done. It is now grounded in what God chose to reveal to us about himself. For our faith this morning is not what is not grounded in what we have convinced ourselves of. But our faith this morning is grounded in what God has revealed to us about himself. And his own willingness to convince us of who he is and what he will do. God has revealed to us his dealings with Abraham and his heirs. So what does God's dealings with Abraham by promise and by oath reveal to us? It reveals to us that God desired for Abraham and he desired for you and I to be assured of two things. First, as we've already considered his unchangeable character and we've we've been considering that his immutability the fact that he does not change who he says that he is what he says he will do never changes that's the first thing 
For it is God's unchangeable character that assured Abraham and that assures you and I that God is capable of doing what he will do. And it's also God's unchangeable character that assures us that God will not go back on his word. God will not be guilty of lying. In other words, it was not possible for this promise not to be fulfilled. It would have been impossible for the promise to be reversed or even for Abraham to do something that would ensure that the promise would not be fulfilled. God established it by an oath, an unchangeable decree, and it would happen and did happen, and thank God it did. In fact, the writer to this epistle assures us here in verse 18 that it is by two unchangeable things, the first being God's unchangeable character, that we know that it is impossible for God to lie. He who defines what truth is cannot change his nature and cannot promote falsehood. But then secondly, God would have us to see and to be assured, and this speaks directly to the second unchangeable thing here, and that is his unchangeable purpose. We see here the unchangeable nature of God in who he is and his will. And we also see here the unchangeable nature of God's purpose. For out of his unchangeable character, God graciously acts in unchangeable ways. Ways that can always be trusted. And because God is unchangeable in all of his ways, God is unchangeable in all of his dealings with his people, we need not fear to take refuge in him. We need not worry that some change or some inconsistency within God's purposes might diminish or dispel the hope that we have. We need not worry that God's ways will lead us down a path that is dishonoring to him and to us or destructive to our own spiritual well-being. But rather, the writer of this epistle states here at the end of verse 18 that we can be confident in the one that we have fled to for spiritual refuge. And we now have every reason to be strongly encouraged in the hope that is set before us because the unchanging purpose of God is certain. We can have full assurance in it. Then not only does the writer of this letter point our attention to the way that God dealt with Abraham, which is the primary focus of verses 13 through 18, but he desires even more so to point us to God's dealings with us through our forerunner and our great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. This should not surprise us. In every case, in every chapter, in every paragraph, in every line, it seems as though the writer to the Hebrews is trying to make his way to Christ. To Christ. And that's where he should be making his way to. To Christ. The story of Abraham is remarkable. There's, there's great comfort in what God did for Abraham. But it's nothing compared to what God does for us through our forerunner and great mediator, the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus is the focus of the remainder of our text this morning, verses 19 and 20. For while there is much to learn and much to be encouraged about with regard to how God dealt with Abraham, our hope is not founded in the faith of Abraham. Amen? I'm glad it's not. Our hope is not found in his works. I'm glad that the promise did not depend upon Abraham's faithfulness. In fact, what we greatly admire about Abraham can be attributed to God's work in him. So if there's anything commendable about Abraham, and there are things that we are told to consider and to imitate, we understand that God is the source of that even within Abraham's life, just as he is the source of all that's good in our lives. It is not to the faithfulness of Abraham that we look to. Abraham and his example are not to be the ground of our confidence. But rather when we look past Abraham, and I want you to look past Abraham now, if you would. We considered him briefly and rightfully so. Let's look past Abraham as we consider where Abraham's eyes were fixed as a believer in Jesus Christ. We find that what we have is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. According to verse 19 of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. For Jesus Christ is that sure and steadfast anchor. And of course, the purpose of an anchor, and I know a little bit about this since I was in the Navy for a number of years, and when we would lay anchor, they were not small anchors like you would throw out of your bass boat, but they were very large anchors that would be lowered down to the bottom of the ocean floor. And the purpose of that anchor was to keep the ship from drifting. The purpose of that anchor many times was to hold fast one's position in the midst of a storm. I think we should kind of have that image in our mind this morning. Abraham is not our anchor. Nor would it be wise to place our hope in anything that Abraham did, as I said a few moments ago, even though he is called the father of the faithful. For our hope, the writer says here in verse 19, is that hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Or in other words, our hope is not an earthly hope that enters into the tents of Abraham in Canaan. Enter into the, 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 the tents of Abraham and Canaan. That's, that's not where our hope is. Although Abraham was looking for the promise of a better land to inherit. But rather our hope is a heavenly hope that enters, according to the writer here, into the inner place behind the curtain, which is the place where the high priest ministers. For what our souls need in order to be anchored, in order not to drift, in order to hold steadfast in the midst of the storm is not the work of a patriarch, which is what Abraham was, but our souls need a high priest. 
a high priest, which is what the Lord Jesus was and still is. For if our hope enters behind this greater curtain, which is now located in heaven, it will find the Lord Jesus Christ there. Notice the writer states so beautifully here in verse 20 that this is where Jesus has gone. This is where Jesus has gone. You want to know where Jesus is? Here's the answer. It's where Jesus has gone into this inner room behind the curtain. Of course, the idea here is that no one else can go behind that curtain. No one else can enter into that abode. And why is Jesus there? Well, the writer states that he has gone into that inner room behind the curtain as a forerunner on our behalf. Or in other words, he has entered into this inner room as our representative. As our representative. And his work in that inner room is to ready a place for us within his very presence. Just as Jesus said in John 14 in verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. In fact, the word forerunner here in verse 20 refers to one who goes out beforehand, to one who paves the way for others to follow. That's what a, a forerunner does. Certainly by rising from the dead and by ascending into heaven itself as the glorified God-man, Jesus has gone before us. He is our forerunner as no one else has or can. And Jesus is prepared to receive us because of his high priestly work as no one else could. And no doubt as our forerunner, it is how we should now see Jesus. Jesus is the one that we should be looking ahead to. So our eyes should be completely off of Abraham now. Our eyes should be in heaven where our forerunner is. We should be looking ahead. And yet not only has he exercised the role of forerunner for us, but the writer informs us here in verse 20 as well, that in doing so, in ascending into heaven... In entering into that inner room behind the curtain to prepare a place for us, he has also become something. He has also become something. He's become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which Brother Kevin will address, Lord willing, beginning next Sunday. For as our great high priest, Jesus is anchoring us. As our great high priest, Jesus is anchoring our faith in his redemptive work. He is holding us steadfast by the power of his own shed blood. And therefore, dearly beloved, as we meditate this morning on the certainty of God's promises, let us recognize where we should be looking. We should recognize where we should ultimately be going we should recognize who is ultimately leading us there. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he's showing us, he's introducing us to, he's anchoring our faith in his priestly work for his people. 
Jesus Christ, the priest, after the order of Melchizedek. What a fascinating introduction to the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 7, and what Jesus Christ is presented as there. In fact, if you're not yet, by God's saving grace, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let, let me stress to you before I conclude this morning's message the, the importance of what you've heard today in this sixth chapter related to Abraham and related to what we've just said about Jesus and his ministry. This morning you've heard that God in his grace gave to Abraham his servant a great promise. And yet that promise was not for Abraham alone. No, that promise was for all of Abraham's spiritual descendants as well. For all of those who, like Abraham, would believe in the hope of a Messiah who would come through Abraham's physical line. And to ensure the fulfillment of his promise, God not only gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a son in their very old age, but he worked throughout the course of human history to bless Abraham's line until the birth of one who would be in one person the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people, and that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of these promises. He is the one who would save his people from their sins. And from the birth of Jesus to the end of his physical life on earth, God openly testified and confirmed that Jesus is the one who perfectly displayed the unchangeable character of God. Jesus is the one who fulfilled God's unchangeable purpose, and that being the salvation of God's chosen people. In fact, all that God has sworn by an oath to Abraham would find its fulfillment and completion in Jesus. In all of God's unchangeable purpose, the redemption of his chosen people would find their fulfillment, especially as Jesus cried out from the cross in John chapter 19 and verse 30, the words, it is finished. The fact that Jesus has risen from the grave, the fact that Jesus has ascended into the heavens, as we noted earlier, is proof that what God has sworn by an oath has come to pass. The only thing that remains is for Jesus, the promised son, to claim all who are rightfully his, to claim all those who have been given to him by the Father through the work of the Spirit who grants true faith and repentance. And so, if you have heard about or you've looked upon God's promise to Abraham, which we spoke about today, maybe you've had this thought this morning, and you thought, this promise has no application to me. Why are we considering 
the promises that God gave to Abraham, how do they possibly relate to me? If that's your thought, then think again. Think again. For the fact that you are hearing the gospel today, I want you to think about this in light of the scope of all of redemption. The fact that you are hearing the gospel today, the fact that you're hearing the good news about Jesus Christ is proof that what God swore to Abraham was fulfilled. And that the Redeemer who is at the heart of that promise is now being presented to you. To you in the form of a sincere offer of the gospel. I want you to trace that in your mind from the giving of the promise to Abraham to the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. It's all connected. It's all relevant. It's all applicable. When Abraham received this promise by oath from God, it was a promise that all would hear of the gospel of Christ in God's time and through God's providence in the way that they have. That promise is being presented to you through this sincere offer of the gospel. And the offer of the gospel is simply this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved. Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you will today. And I pray that you'll see the marvelous hand of God as it is revealed throughout the course of Scripture and all that God has done to ensure that you and I in this day will hear the gospel. In order for you and I to hear the gospel, God had to give an oath to Abraham. In order for you and I to hear the gospel, God had to fulfill an oath to Abraham. In order for you and I to hear the gospel, Jesus had to come to this earth in fulfillment of that oath. In order for you and I to hear the gospel, Jesus Christ had to give himself as a ransom for our sins. In order for you and I to hear the gospel, Jesus Christ had to ascend into heaven. He had to enter into that inner room behind the curtain. He had to become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And all those things have been done, amazingly so. All those things have been done and fulfilled. All that remains is the work of the Spirit. All that remains is for God to call his elect people to grant them faith and repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not done so, I pray that you will this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today. And we ask now that you would bless our time of reflection as we think about what has transpired in the course of redemptive history as we think about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, as we think about your faithfulness to Abraham, and the fact that we can hear the gospel today in truth is a great blessing. And we ask now that you would grant us
the will and the heart to respond as we should as your people with hearts of gratitude. And if we're unbelievers today, that your spirit would grip us, that your spirit would grant us faith and repentance, that we might cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ today, that we might embrace him, that we might trust in him, as no doubt even Abraham embraced the promises of God and held fast to them. Bless us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.